Nine. We are in a, um, we start the first 21 days of January with a time of prayer and fasting, and we're right smack in the middle of it. Today is the middle day, so to speak, of our 21 days of prayer and fasting, and if you'd like to join us at 6 a.m. Uh, every weekday morning to pray, that'd be awesome. We're praying over in the youth room, have, a, have had great um, mornings of prayer over there, and also on Wednesday night, we will have prayer here at church at 630. It's all, all the times are listed in your bulletin. Hope you'll You'll attend those if you can. And so we're looking at different aspects of, there's a thing about prayer and fasting. To pray and to fast takes a measure of sacrifice, does it not? I mean, to, to enter into a prayer, give yourself to prayer, you're going to have to give up time. You're going to have to sacrifice time. You're going to have to sacrifice something to pray, to seek after God. To fast, you're also going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give up something, food or media or whatever it is that God is directing you for. So there's this dual aspect of prayer and fasting. Prayer is the um, aggressive, so to speak. Uh, it's doing something, seeking after God. Fasting is the denial of something. It's, it's giving up something in order to seek after God. But in any case, it, it takes a measure of sacrifice to do it. So we're talking about what does sacrifice look like in the, the Christian life. And really, I've based the whole series on this passage from 2 Corinthians 9, which has to do with sacrificial giving, giving your life away. Now, Paul is specifically speaking about resources, money that's been given away. And I did a first part of this sermon back in November when I preached 2 Corinthians 8. But today I want to look at 2 Corinthians 9. Notice, as I read it, and I've highlighted the words for you a little bit, that uh, how many times the word generosity is used in this passage, starting in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 5 and following. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hilarious giver is really the word in some senses there. It's more than just being cheerful, it's I love to give. We'll talk about that in a minute. Going on, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, I, I really want, I should, shouldn't stop, but I just can't get over this verse. What does that not cover? I mean, listen to it again. And God is able to bless you how? Abundantly, so that in how many things? All things, at all times, having all that you need. You will abound in every good work. Well, that just about covers it, doesn't it? Find something in the gap there that God doesn't take care of. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. 
Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and it will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Again, I'm, I'm just commenting quickly. I, this is not the sermon. This is just the long introduction to the sermon that I'm going to get to. But God is going to provide in every way so that you can do what? Be generous on every occasion. In other words, God's not just, you're going to see this as we go through. God's just not giving to you so that you will be blessed, right? Which is where um, I think the prosperity doctrine falls short. It says, I'm going to give so that I will be blessed. And God reverses it. No, no, no. I'm going to bless you so that you can give. On every occasion, whenever you're going to get, in order not to get, but to give away. It results in generosity. And this generosity is going to result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else and in their prayers for you excuse me and in their prayers for you their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you thanks be to God for his indescribable gift here's the premise that I hope you'll see as Paul is directing this He's, he, he gets to this final verse where he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And to me, this provides the foundation for giving. But more than just giving, it provides the foundation for the entire gospel. God has given his indescribable gift, Jesus, his son. And because of that, we respond in generosity. We get to give away. And we don't give because of guilt or obligation or duty or because, you know, we join the club and here are the dues that they require of me to stay in the club, so to speak. I give because God gave to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God gives. We respond by giving. Giving in so many different ways. Now, again, I, I'm... I'm following up on a sermon I did back in, um, I don't know, first of November on giving at some point and talked about sacrificial giving, uh, how we give and some th ideas. And this is from, this is from chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. I, I probably, hopefully these points will remind you of what we look back in November because chapter 9 builds on chapter 8 in Corinthians. So he says, giving is not a punishment, it's a privilege. Back this is the sermon from last time. Giving is, not, um, giving is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. Giving is not a burden. It is a blessing. Giving is not legalism. It is an act of grace. And giving is an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. Go back and look at chapter 8. And you'll see these points, I think, listed in there. It, the reason I started it off with giving is not a, because too often, that's the way we think of giving. 
whatever it may be, giving of time, giving of resources. We think of it as some sort of punishment. Oh, Jesus paid the price. He went to the cross. He gave his life. So my punishment is now I have to give something, you know, to pay the price for what he already paid for. That's not the way it works. It is a privilege. It is a response to the giving of God. It's not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. It's not a burden. It's not something you have to do. It's an act of thanksgiving, a blessing. It's an act of grace. It, it is it's a response to God's faithfulness. If you don't get these premises of giving, somewhere, at some point, your idea about giving is going to be warped. You're going to give for the wrong reason. You're going to give in the wrong way. And so, we want to... Do we not live in a society where it is, it is all about what I receive, all about what I get? And even for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, but you would call generous, it, it goes to the heart of motivation. What do they do? Why do they do it? Are God's people even seen as generous people? Is the church seen as a generous place or is it seen as a place that just wants me for something? Want something out of me. There's, a, there's an epistle, a letter, that most of us are not probably very familiar with unless you've gone to seminary or done some sort of apologetic study. It's a letter to a guy named Diognetus. Diognetus was, um, we don't know who. There's some speculation. He was a he was a tutor to Marcus Aurelius. There was a guy by the name of Diognetus who was a tutor to Marcus Aurelius. Anybody see the movie Gladiator? Uh, he was the old guy in Gladiator who died, the first king who was decent, not the wicked son. But anyway, um, in any case, Diognetus, there was a guy named Diognetus who was the tutor to Marcus Aurelius in the second century AD. And there's an epistle that was found in the 12 to 1300s, one copy of it. It's dated... And scholars dated somewhere between 130 A.D. and 190 A.D. This epistle, it's about 12 chapters, the first 9 or 10 of which are considered authentic. The last two, I'm giving you more than you really want to know here, I'm sure. But in any case, it is a, it is a, it's from a guy named Methetes. Now, Methetes uh, is the word for disciple uh, or learner. So we don't even know if this is his name because the guy's name is never raised in the epistle. But he is writing to Diognetus to tell him what Christians look like in 130 A.D. Are you following me so far? So I'm going to read you one part. This is from chapter 5. Uh, I'm not, I don't have this on the board. I'm just going to read this to you of what he says to them. about He's saying this to Diognetus. Here's what Christians look like. He says, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. They do not inhabit habit cities of their own, use a particular way of speaking, nor lead a life marked out by any curiosity. The course of conduct they follow has not been devised by the speculation and deliberation of inquisitive men. They do not, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of merely human doctrines. Are you still following me? You listen, to, listen to these words. 120, 130 A.D. Instead, 
They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities. However, things have fallen to each of them. And it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but they do not do as those who are just passing through. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is their homeland to them, and every land of their birth is like a land of strangers. They marry, like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their own lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they are rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their own hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, that is what Christians are in the world. It's incredible the things that he describes Christians as being in that letter, is it not? It's unbelievable what he says about them. In this epistle, just I'm going to just list these just so you'll know. There's, the, there's a complete absence of racism. He's saying wherever they're from, they see Africans and, and, and others as brothers in Christ. They see others as the family of faith. There's the absence of racism or, or exalting others or themselves as more important. They have a really high, high view of life. They don't kill their babies. You know, in this day and age, both racism, so to speak, and you see it in so many different ways, but racism and uh, family life, it had a whole different mentality in 130 AD. Children could have been killed. If they didn't want their children, it was legal to kill your child. They had a high, high view of life. They had an unusual view of sex. They saw it as part of marriage. They shared the same table, but not the same bed. That was a reference to the sexual. In this period of time, <laughs> in this period of time, my uh, iPad is wanting to know, is wanting to talk to me all of a sudden. <laughs> so they had a very unusual view of sex. During this period, you were hungry, you ate. You felt sexy, you had sex. That was there. You just... It was an appetite to be fed. Are we not that very... And finally, they had a radical generosity. A radical generosity. They gave themselves away. 
They just gave what they had away. They shared in a different way. And, and here's the point I want to see besides all these other points about where our society even today is struggling. Have we really progressed from 130 AD? And would people look at the church of Jesus Christ and say, wow, here are four characteristics that qualify, quantify the church of Jesus Christ, their absence of racism, a high view of life, unusual view of sex. And too often we're more like the world than we are different than the world. But this radical generosity characterized the early church. And that's what Paul is speaking of here in 2 Corinthians 9. He's saying, your generosity is a confession of the gospel. It's a confession of a recognition. God gave his gift to you. Now you give what he's given to you away. Now we recognize again that there are people outside the church, outside followers of Jesus Christ that are generous. Generosity is not relegated to just within the church. As a matter of fact, I, I wish it was more within the church. And that's the point I'm trying to make today. But it goes to motivation. It goes to motivation. Paul is speaking to the motivation of how can you be a cheerful, hilarious giver? How can every time the offering plate, you put something in and say, praise God, I get to give again. This is awesome. Or some opportunity that presents itself outside of the church today where you see someone who's in need and you get to give something away, whether it's resources or a, a word of encouragement or most importantly, the good news of Jesus Christ. How can that spirit of generosity jump on you? And not just jump on you, but get in you. So that it is a way of life that people say this characterizes fullness. This characterizes the people that are a part of that church. They are generous in every way. Well, here are three points I think Paul is saying to us. First, if you really want to do it, a generous giver knows God. A generous giver knows God. It, it, we Here in chapter 9, verse 70, says, Every man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, he's saying too often we give out of obligation or duty. But really, if we know God, then we can give cheerfully. It changes the nature of our heart. In other words, there may be somebody on this side of the congregation who puts $100 in today. Somebody on this side of the congregation who puts in $100. person over here is giving because they're like, you know, the pastor, he keeps sending out these emails about giving, and I feel like i got to do something to step up, so I'm going to just, you know, I'm, I'm a part of this place i got to give. Somebody over here says, you know what, praise God. He's given everything to me. I just, I love giving. It's an act of worship before God. You see, you can get the same hundred without the same heart. And God is after our hearts. He's not after your hundred. I mean, if God indeed owns the cattle on thousand hills, you know, and everything's made, he's, he's not really concerned about your money, so to speak. He's not going to go broke. You know, God's not in debt. He, he's He's fine. And I believe his people are fine, despite my emails. I think we're fine. <laughs> Hopefully you got the email that said, hey, great job, this people. You, you know, we, we let you know where we were financially. You stepped up, gave abundantly. 
Not only that, but I didn't mention in that email, by the way, I'm just digressing a little bit, but you gave $3,000 for earthquake relief in Albania on top of that for your Christmas gift. So we sent, not only, we only, you know, budget-wise were great, gave money for Albania, well done. But that's not the point. The point is not about the number, but it's about the state of our heart before God. If we love God and he loves us, then we have no problem being a people who give. Right? We know God. And he knows, he knows us. Listen, how am I doing? I'm good. I'm good. Things are good, right? We're still good? So, um, you know, there are too many Christians, and I'm not saying this is us, nobody in this room. But there are too many people in the Christian life who treat God like leftovers. You know, it's like, I have this, but I'm really not going to give until I'll just give God what's left over. You know, I pay all my bills, I'll do all my stuff, and then just leftovers. I mean, I like leftovers okay, you know, for a while, but they get old, right? You know, At some point, there's got to be a first over, not a leftover, right? I remember when I was, this is horrible, when I was uh, single, I lived with three other guys, and we lived in this uh, apartment in Fort Worth. I was going to seminary. And, you know, we'd go out to eat, and then we'd bring leftovers home, or we'd cook something, we'd put it in the fridge. About every six months, we decided to clean out the fridge. You know what I mean? You just kind of go in the fridge and say, whoa, what, what, not only what is this, but what was this? <laughs> you know, at some point, I'm not even sure what food this was anymore. I remember one time we went to the fridge, and it was so bad, we just threw not only the food away, but the dish it was in, too. You know, you're like, I'm not even going to clean this. This is how bad, I know, it's our girls are here are like, What? How do they live like that, those pigs? Well, it's just normal life to us, but we'd rather buy dishes than wash those things. Sometimes when it comes to giving, we act like that. Oh, if I happen to have $5 left over, I'll give it to God. You know, again, it's not about the number. It's about the state of our heart before him. Why do we do what we do? We do because we recognize that God loves us and we love him. We know him. We know him. We're like him as his children, and we want to be like him. Also, a generous giver walks in faith. Walks in faith. Back in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Here's the thing about sowing and reaping. And this principle, by the way, goes across life, this whole sowing and reaping principle. Here's one of the things about sowing. To sow, you've got to scatter, right? To scatter, to me, takes a, a measure of faith. You know, I could either take this seed I have and use it and eat it and make bread or whatever out of the seed, do something with the seed, or I can sow the seed, which means throw it out there so that it will take root, spring to life, bear fruit, and I can have more. But that's, a, that's an act of faith to sow. Many of us, we don't walk by faith, honestly. We walk by sight. 
if it's not in my budget, I'm not doing it. Because, you know, I, it might do this or that. You know, so we work, we work by sight, not by faith. Now, please don't hear me. I am not saying to you, hey, listen, walk by faith. Go sell your house. Give it to the church. God will provide a place for you to live. I, I mean, I've heard so many Christian manipulative sermons about faith and giving that I, I almost fall in the ditch on the other side not wanting to say anything. But there is a truth here about saying, what, why, does, why does God like us to walk in faith? I believe that walking in faith will break the spirit of the age off of you, whatever that might be. And can we confess that we live in an age of give me, I deserve, this is my right, this is, this is what I as an American demand of life? Instead, what we need to do is be a people who walk by faith. God wants us to walk by faith. And finally, God loves, and don't, when I say finally, it meant nothing because I got like 10 more points here. Um, but the third point of the 20-point sermon is this. A generous giver loves people. Loves people. What is, again, it speaks to our motivation. Look at chapter, uh, verses 12 through 15, just this whole section. He says, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing to many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity, um, for your generously sh uh, in generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing Grace, God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The whole picture here is one of, I'm doing this because it's an expression of God's grace to people. It's touching people. It's ministering life to people. Living generously expresses our love for people. Too often... Too often, we view people through the lens of how are they going to benefit me rather than how can I bless them. And in that, we become people users, not people lovers. Even our friendships many times are based on a re reciprocity. I'm going to befriend someone if they can be a friend with, with me, if they can provide something emotionally or supportive to me rather than saying what can I give away I, I may start stepping on toes here a little bit but I'll step on my own we choose a small group based on hey what is what am I going to get out of this small group rather than what can I give to this group we choose a church based on what can I get from this church rather than what is calling me to give away to this church in other words I, I don't mean to be ugly, but the spirit of greed pervades every corner of our lives. And, and it really, it, we really need to see it broken off in us if we're really going to walk in freedom. Jesus said, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Wait a minute, I just thought there was one kind of greed. Like money greed. No, no. Jesus is saying, there's all kinds of greed. 
be on guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I mean, we... We in America, if we're not careful, we look at like the Dickens Christmas Carol, you know, the whole Scrooge character. We see him as, wow, he was a good banker, but then he became just this sentimental fool. Do you understand? Because we think greed was the good thing, but now he's given his life away. What kind of idiot is he? Many people operate even in church life like that. I read a story about this guy. These two guys are marooned on a desert island. And one guy's just all fretful and he's worried and he's like, oh, I don't know if we'll ever be rescued. I don't know if we'll ever get taken care of. And the other guy's just relaxed and calm. And the nervous guy looks to the relaxed guy and says, hey, what? how can you be so relaxed? And he goes, oh, it's no problem. I make $100,000 a week. I tithe faithfully to my church. My pastor's going to find me. <laughs> you know, many of us, when we think about church life, that's what we think. Oh, you know, he's just trying to use us. Somebody's trying to use me to further their own ends. It's not a love of people. It's a love of stuff. And this greed has jumped on us. And we need to see that broken. And I believe that generosity will help you break the spirit of greed in your life. Let me just say this, too. I've never, ever, I've been pastoring for 26 years in this one place. I've had people come to me and confess all sorts of sins. I've never had people confess two sins to me. Pastor, I'm a gossip. Never has happened. And, Pastor, I have a spirit of greed. Never has that occurred. Why? Because we barely, those aren't that bad. Really? Or we don't even recognize them in our own life. I just want to say to you, if you're an American, which all of us here, or you live in America, or you've had any contact with an American, you are infected with a spirit of greed. It is a part of our culture. It is a part of our nature. And we need to see it broken so that we can be a generous people. And I want to say, generosity will talk to the world about the gospel. It will be a confession of the gospel. And you may say, look, I don't have a lot to give away, Pastor. What are some things I can give away? I'm going to list these for you real quick. They're just I put 10 with a Bible verse in your uh, notes that you can look at and take of things that you can give away. And, of course, being generous with money. I don't want to dismiss that because, honestly, greed most often has to do with money in our lives. Can we recognize that as well? Uh, but some of us, there are some people who would rather pay money than give away time. So it, greed can fix itself in a lot of different ways in our lives. So just recognize, here's some things you can give away. You can give an ear. It's not literally your ear, but to listen. James says, my dear brothers... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and what? Yeah, we're not that. And we're definitely not slow to become angry. We are generally fast on the trigger, on speaking and being angry. We can give affection. Romans 12, 19, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We can give kindness and to 
godliness, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, love. We could just be nice to one another, right? Let, hey, you really want to let us speak? Start in your home. Be nice. Some of you are like, oh, wow, he has gone off the rails now. <laughs> give, give laughter. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's good to laugh, I think. It's a great thing. It frees people. Give compliments. Man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. I think he's talking about speaking blessings to one another. Here, here's something you can write down. I, I tell this in uh, premarital counseling all the time. When you go to speak, bless and curse not. Speak blessings, don't curse. In other words, compliments are like this. Um, you're, you're just like your mother, you'll never change. No, that's a curse, <laughs> right? I mean, really, that's the way we talk in marriage. Uh, rather than blessing, saying thank you. Wonderful meal, I appreciate it. We, we tend... Ten curses usually come from our mouth before one compliment flows out. Try and flip that a little bit. And I won't say curse. What about even a correction? Try blessing within your home. Give compliments. All right, I'm moving on quickly. Give a favor. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Serving, favors. Give some space. Sometimes, this is a passage where Jesus needed some space. Sometimes one of the greatest gifts you can give someone is space. I'm probably just talking about myself here. Um, give a smile. A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. Some of you haven't smiled in years. <laughs> Try it. It'll bless people around you. You may have to practice in front of the mirror. You may be thinking, I'm smiling, but your face... you. Give a prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends. Hey, by the way, these are the friends who were no friends, right? These are the friends who kept telling Job, oh, you just, you did it. It's your fault. You're bad. You're horrible. It's all your fault. Hey, Job prayed for these guys. And it was after the Lord made him prosperous again. Sometimes praying for your enemies is unbelievably powerful in your life. Praying for somebody who's offended you. And by the way, I don't mean praying like God bring down the wrath of heaven on them. <laughs> Not that kind of prayer. A prayer of blessing on them will do wonders in your heart and in your life. It'll, take, it'll break revenge off and instead it'll release blessings in, in life. I know I got like 20 sermons here, but thanks for just going with me. Finally, give the gospel. Give the gospel. What greater gift do we have? I mean, really, ultimately, what else do we have other than the good news of Jesus Christ? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Listen, have we become ashamed of the gospel so that we're ashamed to give it away? When we say things like, oh, I'm afraid that if I, I insist that someone will, I'll offend someone. We live in this age of offense. Listen, just speaking the good news of Jesus Christ will be offensive to somebody. Paul says it. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive to this group. It's offensive to this group, all for different reasons. 
Now, proclaim the gospel. Still, share the gospel and give it away. And you can figure a way to give. You don't have to be offensive to do it. It's not like, oh, they're going to be offended anyway, so I'm going to offend them. It's not that. Just present the gospel in a loving, caring way. Give it away. I believe God is calling us to be a generous people. Generous with our everything that we are. And that's why I listed these 10 things. It's not that those are so specific, but it's more of saying, hey, the Bible talks about all these different ways we can give our lives away. From our resources, our finances, to our time, to our lives. But what he's saying is let generosity permeate who you are. Last week on 60 Minutes, um, I watched 60 Minutes. I know I'm a nerd to the highest level. I, I love 60 Minutes. It's just one of those shows I like to watch. This past week, they did a whole show um, on the New York University Medical School. By the way, I looked this up this week because I just, it's the kind of guy I am. Four, the four top debt loads in the United States. Do you know what they are? Number one? Number one debt Americans have? Housing. Mortgages. Nine trillion dollars in debt. Um, number two? Student debt. Number two. 1.5 trillion. Number three? Auto debt. Number four, credit card debt. When we think of debt, we usually think of credit card debt as being like the curse. Of, but it's fourth on the list, actually. Housing is, I'm not going to get into it. But student debt is crushing people. Um, crushing people. The um, average medical student leaves medical school, average medical student leaves medical school with $200,000 in debt. $200,000 in debt in medical school. Now, what that has happened, it's had ramifications across the board. One ramification is that highly qualified students from low-income families are choosing not to go to medical school. Very qualified, be great doctors, but they're saying, I can't, because their minds can't get around a $200,000 debt, and how are they going to pay that off? The second ramification is that Students are making decisions about what kind of medicine to practice based on what, what's the highest paying one. How can I get out of this debt? I've got this crushing debt, so I'm going to go into dermatology or orthopedics. I don't know if you knew dermatology is one of the top payers. I think plastic surgery, by the way. Uh, not all dermatologists are, but it is one of the highest paying. So it, by, by the year 2030... We're going to have a shortage of 49,000 primary care doctors in the United States because students are not making decisions based on, can I, can I go to rural medicine? Can I do uh, internal medicine? Can I do pediatrics? Or can I do primary care and families? Because those are not the highest paying medical doctor fields. You with me so far? So New York University has decided to do this radical thing that they introduced a year ago, which is medical school is tuition-free for everyone. Everyone who goes to NYU 
you're not going to pay tuition. Now, obviously, this has caused like an earthquake within the medical community. Because some medical schools have different scholarships based on different things. At NYU, over the last 10 years, they raised, raised $450 million so that they can, in perpetuity, give away free medical school. The guy who raised the money is um, Robert Langone, who is the CEO at the guy who started Home Depot. He's the head chairman of the board of trustees. And the dean of the school, Grossman, Dr. Grossman, he, he when Langone came on the board of trustees, Langone went to him and said, hey, what can I do? And I think I'm pronouncing the names right, but you, you probably don't know either. Um, so anyway, he went to him and said, hey, what can I do? And he said, I want to give, I want to make our school tuition free. So they figured out how much that would cost, and Langone gave $100 million of his own dollars to kickstart this and then raise the rest over 10 years. It did those, it accomplished a couple of things. First, they're hoping it will accomplish that students make a choice based on their love and what kind of medicine they go into rather than strictly on financial. There's no guarantee because someone could still say, hey, I got a debt-free education, but I'm still going to go into a lucrative career. But there, it's not the driving force for their decision. And most importantly, here's, here's the thing I, that Langone said. I want to read it to you, if I can find it real quick. In this interview that struck me so much, he said this. He's, he's hoping that someday this doctor is sitting across from a patient who can't pay him. He can't give something, to, you know, he can't, doesn't have insurance, can't pay, whatever. And Langone said this, the doctor, he, his dream is this, for the doctor to say, somebody did something for me, now I have to do something for somebody. One day when you're dealing with a patient who can't afford to have something done, you might say, it's on me. I'll take care of it, and I'll pass it on. Here's what struck me about this. They're saying, look, maybe because we gave the students some tuition-free dollars, 200000 sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, right? Gave them this free tuition. Maybe one day they'll look at a patient across the aisle and say, you know what, somebody gave me this free education. Now I can afford to give this away to this person. Here's what I want to say to us. God's gift to you is immeasurable. God has given you the gift of his only son. Thanks be to God for what? His indescribable gift. Indescribable. Unmeasurable. What is our response to be? Give it away. Give not just that away, but give our very lives away to the world around us. If today, we, a couple of hundred people, said, my goal in life as a recipient of the grace of God is to live a grace-filled life of generosity to the world around me, I'm telling you, we would radically change this city. It can't be stopped. That spirit of generosity 
that spirit of giving will change not only me, but our homes, our lives, our church, and our city. Let's give our lives away. Lord, I pray this morning that you will just strike us with a spirit of generosity, so to speak. As this passage talks about that we can be generous, hilarious givers. Because we recognize your greatest gift was given to every single one of us. May we give it away. May we give life away to those around us. May we give resources away as a demonstration of the good news of Jesus Christ. May we give words of life to our co-workers, those in school with us. Lord, let life flow through us. May we be conduits of the love and life and grace of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guess what?